Welcome to another episode of Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nation. We're your hosts, Melanie Sona and Erin Liebka. And today we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Robert Bullard. So Dr. Robert Bullard is a distinguished professor of urban planning and environmental policy and founding director of the Bullard Center for Environmental and Climate Justice at Texas Southern University. He's also co-founder of the HBCU Climate Change Consortium and the National Black Environmental Justice Network. Dr. Bullard is often called the father of environmental justice. He's author of 18 books, including his latest book, In the Wrong Complexion for Protection, How the Government Responds to Disaster Endangers African-American Communities. He's received numerous awards, including being named one of 13 environmental leaders of the century by Newsweek in 2008. In 2021, he was appointed by President Biden to serve on the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. And most recently, Dr. Bullard received the Harvard Law School Environmental Law Society's Horizon Award, which recognizes outstanding contributions to environmental law and policy. So with that very impressive background and resume, we're very excited to have you on, Dr. Bullard, to share your expertise with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we probably quite a few of our listeners are probably not familiar with the term environmental justice. Could you briefly uh, describe what that is and then how uh, you apply the principles of environmental justice and the work that you're doing? Well, the concept of environmental justice... Uh is uh, fairly simple to understand. Uh, Environmental justice embraces the principle that all people and communities are entitled to equal protection of our environmental, housing, transportation, uh, energy, uh, health, and civil rights laws. And so when we talk about uh, having uh, equal access to a clean environment and a healthy environment, uh, it should not be dependent on how much money you make or physically where you live. And so that's how we have been able to grow and I guess expand this whole concept of what the environment is. The environment is everything. It's where we live, work, play, learn, worship, as well as the physical and natural world. So it's not, uh, once you, uh, you know, kind of like dig into what it really is, it's not that, uh, it's not that hard to understand. Thank you for that um, description and explanation. And um, I like that you say that the environment is everything. It's not just, you know, um, talking about, you know, air quality or whether we have green space. It's, it's all encompassing. And because it's all encompassing, that's why it's so critical to look at when it comes to health and health outcomes, because we're exposed to it every day. So um, we're really grateful for your insights and the work that you've done um, and you've done such an incredible, you have such an incredible um, repertoire of work um, in understanding and, and educating people on what environmental justice is to the point that you've been um, deemed the father of environmental justice. So could you share some of your like earlier challenges and obstacles you may have faced um, trying to uh, to show the public that this is an issue that is worth the attention and worth effort in uh, combating. Well, you know, I've, I've been doing this work and uh, connected the dots a long time ago, probably for uh, either either of you were born 1979. And we're talking 44 years, uh, three years out of graduate school. I graduated from Iowa state university 
And my wife and I, Linda McKeever Bullard, came to Houston and settled. And three years out of graduate school, I was asked uh, by her, she was an attorney, to collect data for a lawsuit that uh, that was challenging the location of municipal landfills. And this landfill was located uh, in uh, a predominantly black middle-class neighborhood in the suburbs. Nothing out there except trees, houses, and black people. But yet and still, they wanted to put a garbage dump in this neighborhood. And so she filed a lawsuit, Bean versus Southwestern Waste Management Corporation, 1979. And she needed someone to do a study and collect the data for that for that uh, lawsuit. And I got drafted. And I had 10 students in my research master's class at Texas Southern University, where I am now. And uh, we developed the, the research protocol, the design, uh, um, mapping. This is before GIS, uh, spatial mapping. With, there was no Google. You had to iPad. do it the hard way. <laughs> we had to do it the hard way, almost with a hammer and a chisel, ancient. Uh, there was no laptops and, and iPhones and none of that. Uh, and so we, we were able to gather the data and put it on a map, color code where people lived uh, by race and income. And as it turns out, uh, my 1979 study showed that 100% of all the city-owned landfills were located in predominantly black neighborhoods. Six out of eight of the incinerators city-owned were located in predominantly black neighborhoods. And three out of four of the privately-owned landfills were located in predominantly black neighborhoods. So from the 1930s up until 1978, 82% of all the garbage in Houston, the fourth largest city in the country, was located uh, in predominantly black neighborhoods, even though blacks made up only 25% of the population. Now, that was an aha moment for me as a sociologist. You never find that kind of data. So this was not random. Everybody produces garbage, uh, and but everybody doesn't have to live where the garbage is disposed, burned, incinerated, or compacted. And so that's, that was the inequity that, uh, that we uncovered um, some 44 years ago. That's pretty insane to to think about. I think also the, for, yeah, just this idea of not only realizing that for your, your, where you were living in um, the city of Houston, but taking these notions of why are we seeing these, like you said, it's not random. So what's causing um, these inequities and exposure and these um, toxic environments? Um, So, I'm I'm curious when you were, you know, initially navigating finding out that these um uh, dis- uh incinerators and dumps were in these predominantly black neighborhoods, did you w- were there challenges or um like conflict when it came to trying to make people aware, like, did people push back on this idea? Do people maybe not care? Um, or were there, was there denial that this was happening? What was that? What was that landscape like? Okay. You want to know the hard truth? I'll I do. You. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was, uh, you could, you couldn't believe the things that were said. I just gave oh you the gosh. facts, the data, uh, the methodology of plotting, put them on a map, showing who lives next, uh, next door, et cetera. Uh, and when we showed them that data, some of in the we lost in court. Uh, it took from 1979 wow. up until 1985 and 87. Even with those hard facts, we were not able to prove that this was intentional. When I show mm-hmm. these data to 
uh, some of the environmental groups because we wanted to uh, get their help. Now, this is only um, nine years after the first Earth Day. Earth Day number one was in 1970, and this was 1979. So, so there was an Earth Day, and, and everybody was pretty much aware of what environmentalism in the country was. But when we show that information to some of the environmental groups, uh, predominantly white green groups, they said, I won't call any names, we're friends now. Uh, isn't that where the landfill is supposed to be? Oh isn't that gosh. where garbage is supposed to be dumped? We even went to, I'm going to tell you, it's get, it gets worse. We even went to some of the uh, civil rights groups, one of the oldest civil rights groups in the country in 1979. I won't call any names, but we know the initials. Uh, and I'll, tell, I'll say it. NAACP. We went to them and they said, well, we don't work on environment. Uh, we work on housing discrimination, voting, education. So it took almost uh, two decades uh, before the environmental issue and justice and civil rights issue converged into what we call environmental justice. Today, uh, it's commonplace to talk about uh, the issue of uh pollution following uh, the path of least resistance, whether it's poor people or people of color or, or your zip code uh, being uh, one of the most uh, potent predictor of health and well-being. You tell me your zip code, I can pretty much tell you how healthy you are depending on what's in that neighborhood that will make you healthy, like parks, green space, grocery stores, walk trails, nature parks, all those things. And then what's in that neighborhood that could make you sick or kill you? Uh, you talk about landfills, incinerators, petrochemical plants, refineries, uh, lead in housing, lead paint, lead in parks, all those things. So when we talk about the environment, the physical environment, the social environment and the political environment, all those things converge today to make uh, for good health outcomes, as well as uh, these health disparities that we uh, see so uh, often today that's still around uh, and, and, and so hard to somehow just disentangle yeah. and eliminate. Um, I, I mean, I'm just shocked that even with the like unarguable evidence that you were able to gather these maps, which we love maps. I mean, they're a great way to, to show the hard <laughs> truth and for people of any background to be able to clearly see, you know, the disparities um, and exposure. It, it's crazy to me that, you know, this council of people wouldn't be able to recognize that and acknowledge this truth. And I think one aspect of that perhaps is just an ignorance, um, for lack of a better word, to the realities that a lot of people in this country face. And that's something that we're trying to uncover and understand how it can detrimentally impact policy and then impact a lot of these communities that have been historically um, underserved and overlooked. So the term for that could be intersectionality, if you would, and we recognize that's a really big part of environmental justice, is having policymakers and people who are aware of the issues plaguing their communities. So could you maybe discuss how policymakers can better incorporate intersectional perspectives and views into their their policies to be able to address um, the, the unique challenges that a lot of these marginalized communities are facing? Okay, let me just give you a little history lesson. Uh, before the concept intersectionality uh, burst on the scene in the 2020s, uh, I, I wrote 18 books on environment, housing, education, health, transportation, energy, food and water security, uh, issues around parks, green space. 
All those things are connected. And all of my 18 books that deal with those various topics is 18 books, but it's just one book. Don't tell anybody. All those books <laughs> are connected by equity, fairness, and justice. I wrote a book called Just Transportation. I wrote another book called Highway Robbery. Or another book called Duffing in Dixie. The first environmental justice book in the yeah. country was Jumping in Dixie. I finished that book in 1989. And I showed irrefutable evidence, without a doubt, all the facts, all the data, all the science show that black communities in the South, regardless of income, middle income, uh, low income, no income, were disproportionately impacted by pollution from incinerators, landfills, refineries, um, chemical plants. And I finished the manuscript in 1989, but I couldn't get a publisher because the publishers were telling me, well, there's no such thing as environmental racism. The environment is neutral. Everybody is treated the same. The environment is is objective. And and I finally found a publisher in 1990, Westview Press, which is based in Boulder, Colorado, which uh, they, the Westview Press, they publish a lot of environmental books. And it's something about Boulder. I don't know if you've ever been to Boulder, Colorado. Uh, they publish <laughs> yeah, my book, uh, Mountain High Air, Bean sprout, tofu, <laughs> marijuana. It published my book. <laughs> so, so the idea of showing that uh, this uh, connected tissue of racial redlining that may have occurred, and I looked at the South as the area that had uh, segregation by race by law, Jim Crow segregation, which was easier to show that physically some. Uh, residents live on the other side of the railroad track, the levee on the other side of the highway or whatever, and way tax dollars are spent uh, and where infrastructure is built oftentimes follow along race and class lines. And so I was able to show that in Dumping and Dixie, race, class, and environmental quality uh, in 1990. And as I said, it was hard to get a publisher, but once I got one publisher, I wrote it, I kept writing books showing this pattern existing across the board and and showing that uh, the whole idea, your as I said, your zip code can be more potent predictor than your genetic code in terms of how healthy you are and your access to opportunity. And and so it's, uh, it's very important that we understand how all these things connect, the air, the water, the land, the, the, the physical space, who has access to green space. The fact that uh, red line neighborhoods, red line is nothing more than a concept of, of policy that, that somehow deny uh, housing, uh, mortgages, uh, parks and green space, uh, uh, infrastructure to prevent flooding and, and land use patterns that, that somehow restrict uh, and segregate industrial facilities from houses. Those policies can impact uh, how long you live, and you can you can have two zip codes that are next to each other, and you can have a life expectancy disparity of ten to fifteen years, uh, and, and drive fifteen minutes away, and you can see so you can live twenty years longer, and then you go across uh, fifteen minutes from there in another zip code, and you have that that uh, that disparity in terms of life expectancy. Uh, elevated uh, uh, disparities in terms of asthma, uh, uh, cancer, diabetes, 
obesity. So, so your physical environment has a lot to do with health. And, and, and so when we talk about uh, disentangling and trying to uh, find the real solutions to these disparities, we have to look beyond the medical model. Uh, X, uh, uh, X disease is caused by this particular chemical or whatever, and and talk about the physical environment and talk about, uh, Mm -hmm. your access to quality food, what you eat can, can impact how healthy you are. And if you don't have a grocery store in your neighborhood, they got fancy names for that. Now they call it food deserts. Uh, we used to say (laughs) we ain't got no grocery store. That's what we called it. They call it food deserts. Yeah. Dr. Bullard, I think everything that you're saying, and that's a huge, this neighborhood environment specifically is a huge reason why Melanie and I started this podcast in the first place, because everyone should have the power to know what parts of their environment are positively or negatively impacting their health. And I think, you know, for our listeners, like when we say that Dr. Bullard is like the pioneer of this field, like there's not even terms, there wasn't terms for this kind of stuff when you're doing this work and I can't even imagine how insurmountable it must have felt. I think now, you know, we live in a space where I feel like the neighborhood built environment, all of that kind of stuff is undervalued, but at least there's terms for it. There's research on it. There's recognition of it. And I genuinely do think that that is largely, you know, because of people like you that we're able to have some sort of footing, some sort of grounding to work to further the environment. So I, I I appreciate the work that you're doing. And I'm something else that I appreciate about all of, you know, all of these books, all of the research is that you didn't stay in this research academia space. You did such an amazing job of translating this all into policy. And that's recognized in how many awards you've gotten, but also just generally in the way that you framed your work. Um, And so I I would like to know more a little little bit more about that in terms of the policy advocacy side of things and how you balanced like, okay, I need to know a lot of information, right? I need to gain an understanding of this problem, but I also need to implement real structural change that can affect people's lives for the better. Yeah. Well, you know, I get that question a lot. And I tell people I am a sociologist by training. And I tell folks, I don't, you know, jokingly, I don't do dead white man sociology. I do what scientists <laughs> call kick-ass sociology. And, and <laughs> you know, one, one of my heroes is a, a sociologist, a famous sociologist, W.E.B. Du Bois. And Du Bois was an excellent scholar. He wrote lots of books. And he also uh, was, a, was, was esteemed and, 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 uh, steeped in the idea that you can do your research, but you can also get that research to get translated into uh, uh, political change, social change. Uh, du Bois uh, helped founded the NAACP uh, in uh, early 1900s, and he wrote. He did uh, one of the first empirical studies, studies that did surveys and data in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Negro. So, uh, you know. Trying to base my sociology uh, on his model uh, and to gather the facts, get the data, do the science, but also get it translated into policy and into solutions. And when we were doing the study in Houston back in the 70s and early 80s, we were doing uh, what's today called 
community-based participatory research. It has a nice name now, Research to Action. That's a good name now, but we didn't know it had a name. We just did it. And the idea that it's not enough just to write a book, to write an article uh, and get it in a, you know, a top peer-reviewed journal. If it's sitting on a shelf collecting dust and it's just sitting in a, a lab, uh, of course it can help people, but it can help people in a more positive way if it can get translated into the community so that they can understand how they can use it, take the information, go to city council, the county commissioner, state representative, go to their uh, U.S. congressperson, or go to the White House. You know, when we were working on this stuff in the 70s and 80s, we had no idea that in 1994, there was a group of us that got invited to sit on uh, the President Clinton and Gore's transition team. I was one of those persons. We were able to uh, witness uh, the signing of the Environmental Justice Executive Order in 1994. You know, I was in that Oval Office. (laughs) I got one of those pins that President Clinton signed in 1994. Uh, And so we've been able to make a lot of headway in getting this information into policy. And more recently, uh, the Biden-Harris administration, when when the president signed the Inflation Reduction Act, which is like $369 billion with a B, uh, there's, there's $60 billion in it for, with a B, billion with a B, for environmental justice and another $60 billion for clean energy uh, uh, transition. We never had that kind of money uh, when it comes to environment, justice, climate. And so that's a, that's a lot of um, years to get there. Definitely. Uh, but we are there, but we're not across right. the finish line just yet. We still have a lot of work to do. Dr. Bullard, um, with that, there is still, you've done so much in your time from pioneering it to date, and um, you've definitely laid a foundation for you know future leaders to uh, take on and champion this uh, action for environmental justice. So what do you see as the most pressing challenges and opportunities in this field at the moment? And what role can, you know, not only policymakers and advocates play, but, you know, younger people who are looking to, uh, you know, enter this field and make an impact in their communities? Yes. You know, I, I'm, I'm an optimist and I, I see a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of hope and, and optimism. You know, I've, my adult career has always been working with young people. Only job I really ever I had was a college professor, and and so seeing the change, uh, changes that have been made over these last four decades, and what gives me hope is young people today, who are seeing the 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 threat, the number one threat to humanity, and civilization is climate change, global warming, and so this is not something we can run away from. That means we have to address it head on. And the idea that that today uh, we have intergenerational mobilization. I'm a baby boomer, proud of it, still standing, still fighting. But uh, uh, millennials and Gen Xers and Gen Zers and younger, uh, your generation, outnumber mine. You, you are the new majority and you're becoming... Uh, that new majority and take it on power. The way I see this quest for environmental and climate justice, I see it as a race. It's not a sprint. We can't get there, you know, uh, like a, a, a 50 yard, 100 yard, 100 meter dash. It's like a marathon relay. You run your 26.2 miles and then you pass a baton 
to that next generation to run that uh, run that race. But being a boomer, we don't sit down. We don't stand aside. We still cheer on. Uh, we still mentor and we still work on these issues. And I think that intergenerational mobilization uh, gives us hope that we can uh, uh, make it across that finish line in a way that we can have healthy, livable, sustainable, and resilient uh, communities for all. Not dictated by how much money you make or what your zip code is, but the fact that everybody uh, has a, a right to clean air, clean water, safe food, uh, 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 healthy playgrounds and parks and green schools and that kind of, so they increase the livability and increase the health, healthiness of our nation and the world. And I, that's where I see the vision uh, of how we can get there uh, if we all will pitch in. Uh, it means we'll have to give up a little something. We don't have to, you know, give up everything. I mean, we still can have a livable uh, quality, quality life. But some things we just need to kind of move away from and become much more sustainable and much more, um, I guess, uh, a much fairer society and equitable society so that we're not just dumping on poor people and, and, and allowing our children somehow uh, to, to be uh, in, in polluted environments in schools that don't have the infrastructure for uh, learning or it's too hot to learn or, or workers outside is too hot to work outside because uh, of climate change. We have to address these issues with the urgency of now. The urgency of right now. <laughs> yeah, and you are. I mean, you're on that the White House Advisory Council. Make sure that these funds that were just allocated are going where they're supposed to go, which is huge. I mean, they're they <laughs> they're lucky to have you and your experience. I think that that I, I love the optimism and I love the vision. I think that that's something that is really helpful for Melanie and I to hear because it's these issues are complicated. They're really. Um, they're, they're affecting everyone. They're very overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and so to have people like yourself who have really taken on these issues from the beginning and demonstrated how much progress can be made is really, really great to see. And, and, I, and recognizing the importance of um, younger people and the role that we can play on the, you know, in the political platform and on these policy um with with policy changes as well is is really huge. So we appreciate that, uh, Dr. Bullard. And so it, this is a little bit of a a little bit of a shift. But our last question we ask all of our guests because we you know at Healthy Neighborhoods Healthy Nation we the neighborhood is important. Your neighborhood environment is really important. And hopefully one day we will be at a place where your neighborhood environment isn't dictating your health. But even when that is the case, um, your neighborhood environment is still important and still shapes who you are. And so something that we ask of all our guests is if you could describe what your neighborhood was like growing up and talk a little bit about what you think the impact of your neighborhood was on your life and what you, you know, how you got to where you are today. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I grew up uh, uh, in the South, in Al South Alabama, and it was very segregated, uh, the schools. Um, uh, my school didn't have a library, but my parents uh, bought books. Uh, I couldn't go to the library in my hometown because it was uh, white only. But I was a lover of books, as I said. Uh, and my parents taught me that uh, you could rise above the policy and the 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 restrictions that were placed on me. Uh, 
my I had very good teachers, excellent uh, teachers who nurtured us and loved us and encouraged us. And the neighborhood that I lived in was a very nurturing neighborhood. Uh, and so I think having the nurture, the nurturing uh, uh, neighbors, when I walked from school, uh, everybody knew that if you were slacking off and you're not going straight home, they would call home and say, uh, uh, back then, they, my, people called me Bobby. And anybody who calls me Bobby, I know they must be from my hometown. <laughs> He's not coming home, straight home. You know, you play hooky or you don't go straight home because you got chores to do. But having uh, your, your neighbors and family uh, in that community um, is very important. And when you talk about organizing, mobilizing, and having a close-knit, uh, um, I guess, uh, family, friends, uh, community, uh, place, uh, that had a great impact on me. Uh, even though there are some things that we didn't have access to, it made us work harder uh, to say we, we're going to achieve. Uh, and we're going to you know, rise above those barriers that were artificial barriers that were placed in front of me. Now, that has uh, given me the motivation. As I said, I couldn't even go to the library, but I've written 18 books. And, but the idea yeah. is <laughs> that was not uh, uh, a barrier. It was more like a motivation to say, yes, I'm going to make sure that that library will have yes. something of mine that I've written uh, even though I couldn't definitely, go there, definitely. you know what I'm saying. I'm saying yeah. so. So yeah. the idea of you can uh, you can achieve uh, something even when there are barriers in front of you, and the fact that I think uh, having a community uh, and having uh, uh, teachers uh, and having uh, those kinds of um, uh, opinion leaders, uh, role models, uh, can can point the way and can uh, and can shape. Uh, your lives, even uh, and your and your career, even though you may not even think about these things, you know, uh, growing up, but knowing that it's it's drilled into your DNA, so to speak. Uh, and, and I and I think uh, my parents, my grandparents, uh, uh, and, and my teachers, and my uh, and my community for uh, for those opportunities. And and I and my my lesson from what my uh, uh, grandmother always taught me is uh, never forget uh, where you came from. Uh, and always uh, 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 give credit where credit is due and never think how much you achieved, you did it by yourself. <laughs> you always had help. Now, those are things that I, when my grandma was telling me that, I didn't know what she was talking about. I thought it went in one ear and went out the other, but some of it stuck. <laughs> it stuck. And so that's, I, I try to tell my uh, students that and try to instill that in, in my students to uh, always give back. And and um, and try and try to help uh, someone uh, when you uh, you know achieve yeah. a level of success that you just reach out and try to you know give a little uh, give a little help and and pull somebody else up along with you. Yes, <laughs> I love that, Doctor Bullard. Thanks, thanks for sharing. I, and clearly, you have right. I mean, you're definitely a role model for a lot of people in this space, and you've used your platform to reach back and especially with this policy implementation stuff, making sure that what you experienced or communities around you experienced, they don't have to experience anymore. Um, and something we didn't get a chance to talk about, but something that's clearly very evident based on how you grew up is this community engagement, community-centered mindset, which is 
as I mean, for those of our listeners who listen to our podcast regularly, you will know that that is a that's a trend in creating successful policy change and um, long lasting change for sustainable change for these communities. So thank you so much for sharing that with us, Dr. Bullard. Thank you so much for being here. We truly appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. You are a busy, um, in high demand person. So thank you so much for spending time with us this afternoon. It's my pleasure and all the best. All the best. I'm counting on your generation. <laughs> we'll try our best um, for for our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nation. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would really appreciate it if you could give our podcast a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. And go follow us on our Instagram at HNHN underscore podcast. You can also check out the recordings of this conversation on YouTube. And we would really like for you to join us next time to explore how healthy neighborhoods are the foundation to a healthy nation.